Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Waterloo and Cedar Falls Courier for Sunday, January 1st. I'm your reader, Will Potter. Let's start off today with some articles, starting with Suspect in 2021 Utah Double Slang Took His Own Life in Waterloo. Investigators in Utah believe a suspect behind a double homicide near Moab in 2021 later killed himself at a Waterloo hotel. On Thursday, officials with the Grand County Sheriff's Office laid out their case in the August 21 slaying of Kylan Schulte and Crystal Mitchell Beck Turner at a remote mountainside campsite, showing, ev- showing that evidence points to Adam Pinkowich. Pinkowich had worked with Turner at a McDonald's restaurant in Moab and had been fired shortly before the killings. Pinkowich, 45, took his own life in September of 2021 after traveling to Waterloo to visit his boyfriend, according to investigators. Schulte, 24, and her wife, Turner, 38, lived in the van life, staying at a campground in the area. The two were reported missing on August 16, 2021, while they were staying in the La Salle Mountains near Moab, and their bodies were found two days later. During the investigations, authorities learned that the two had told acquaintances about a creepy camper, a bearded man, that they encountered on August 12, 2021, who set up next to their campsite, said Detective Kerry Rigby with the Sheriff's Office. The couple met with friends on August 13th and joked about the creepy camper, telling others to look for him if they don't show up for work the following day. They left their friends around 12.30 on August 14th, 2021, to return to the campground. Later that morning, around 11.48, faint screams and gunshots recorded on the security system of a nearby ranch, according to authorities. Co-workers noticed Schulte and Turner didn't appear for work in the following days, and they were unable to reach them through Facebook. They were reported missing on August 16, 2021, and family and friends searched the park and found their campsite two days later. Their bodies were found August 18, 2021. During the autopsies, doctors recovered fired bullets, including a full metal jacket, a full metal jacket, and a Hornady critical defense rounds designed to inflict maximum damage, both in 9mm. The rounds were likely fired from a Glock handgun, ballistics tests showed. A Toyota Yaris was seen leaving the campgrounds at around 12.54 p.m., about an hour after the homicides. Detectives said the car stood out because it wasn't the typical SUV, truck, or camper that are usually seen in the mountain campground. It's not something that you typically take camping. It was something obviously stuck out to investigators, Rigby said. Pinkowich, who had a Yaris and also camped, had worked at the same McDonald's as Turner, but the two had different shifts and it wasn't clear if they knew each other, according to investigators. He had conflicts with workers at McDonald's and became threatening and hostile, Rigby said. One of those included an August 8, 2021 blow-up in which he argued with a night manager because he was told to work faster. During the exchange, he made comments about the manager's sexuality, punched him punched his fist into his hand, and said that he should take her outside and kick her. The next manager left fearing for her safety, and another told Pinkowich to punch out because he wouldn't calm down. 
Another time, Pinkowitch apparently became upset that Turner was making sandwiches for her and Schulte at the business while she was off the clock. He mentioned that his concerns to a co-worker, but it wasn't clear if Pinkowitch confronted Turner about the matter. Pinkowitch never returned to work following the slangs and never picked up his last check. He also dodged law enforcement who were trying to contact him. Meanwhile, Pinkowitch had traveled to Waterloo in September of 2021 to visit a boyfriend. Police in Pinkowitch wasn't always speaking in Pinkowitch wasn't always on speaking terms with his family, but relatives, unaware he was a suspect, helped him in the two weeks before his suicide, including assisting him with lodging. Before Pinkowitch left for Waterloo in August, relatives had received a message from him that concerned them. Officers characterized it as a goodbye note. But once he arrived in Waterloo, he appeared to be doing better. When he got out to Waterloo, the family was under the impression that he was doing well and that he was happy, Rigby said. While in town, he stayed at the Motel 6 on Laporte Road. Rigby said conversations with his boyfriend showed their relationship was up and down on September 23, 2021. Pinkowitch received notice that he had turned down for a job that he had applied for in Waterloo. The following day, September 24, 2021, the hotel manager called 911. When police arrived, they found Pinkowitch bleeding from the head. A, 30, a 357 caliber Ruger revolve, revolver was nearby. In the room were two cell phones with a suicide note to relatives. One of the notes mentioned that he was fired for not working fast enough by lefty liberal bosses. I don't want to be part of this forced vax corporate government run zombie brave new world. Nothing makes sense anymore. I don't want to fight it, and I need to die and go to heaven. Part of the message read. Police also found Hornady critical defense rounds in a 357 caliber in the room. At the time of the suicide, Waterloo police didn't know he was a suspect in the Utah murders. The suicide note didn't mention the crime. The license plate on his Yaris parked on the hotel lot came back clean, police said. The phones and other property were turned over to relatives. A bag of ammunition the family found in his car were handed to the police who destroyed it. Utah investigators later determined Pinkowitch had brought a 9mm Glock 19 pistol in 2019. When he bought it, he also purchased specialty 9mm Hornady ammunition, although it wasn't clear if it was the critical defense rounds or a standard hollow points. He also bought full metal jacket 9mm rounds. Police eventually obtained Pinkowitch's cell phones, and they found that he deleted much of the information, his social media accounts, all of the photos of himself from Moab, and installed an encryption app to clean them. They said memos and other information they were able to recover showed extreme signs of racism, as well as problems with anger. Inside his phones, there was also notes and memos about raping and killing other people and how it was a constant thought in his mind, Rigby said. One of the memos read... I am afraid I have an ongoing impulse to kill and rape people, 80%, 20%, and that's what he worried would follow, th and that's what he worried he would follow through with. They also determined that he was familiar with the area of slayings and campers there earlier, and had camped there earlier. Investigators said that they believed Pinkowitch was, Pinkowitch and the creepy camper the woman had mentioned to friends are the same person. Authorities talked to the boyfriend of Pinkowitch had visited. He said Pinkowitch had confessed to the crime, but he said that he didn't notify the police because he was afraid of Pinkowitch. 
The significant other told detectives details that hadn't been released, including the fact that the women were shot while they were in a tent, and their bodies were, remo were then removed. He also said that he shot the women because one, of, because one of the women was a woman that he had worked with, and he didn't like her because she was bossy, Rigby said. The boyfriend told police that he wasn't aware of the suicide and had assumed Pinkowich had simply left the area. Now let's move on to a much less intense article with Hospitals List Most Popular Baby Names of the Last Year. Olivia Ellie Jack Luke, top of the 2022 list in Northeast Iowa. What's in a name? While it may not arrive wrapped in a cute paper, ribbons, and bows, a name is usually the first gift a baby gets after being born. Some parents even host a naming day gatherings to announce their choice to family members and friends. Choosing a baby name is also considered by experts as one of the toughest and most stressful decisions made by parents. In Eastern Iowa, Olivia ranks as the most popular girl's name for 2022 at Unity Point Health Hospitals, and Jack was the top pick for boys, the medical system's Carson Tiggs said in a news release. Ellie slash Elena for girls and Luke slash Lucas for boys were the top names for babies born at Mercy One Northeast in Waterloo, according to a news release. The hospitals had 900 births and 11 sets of twins in 2022. Nationally, Olivia, Emma, and Amelia were the top girl names for the second consecutive year, BabyCenter.com reports. BabyCenter, an online media company that is part of Everyday Health Group Pregnancy and Parenting, said the top five baby girl names remained the same as 2021, with each name ending in the letter A. Liam, Noah, and Oliver ranked the top boy names. Baby name data is volunteered by parents who entered their baby's names in the EHG and PNP database. At Unity Point Health, Allen Hospital in Waterloo, the top 10 girls' names for 2022 were Ava, Olivia, Charlotte, Amelia, Quinn, Hazel, Addison, Collins, Elsie, and Parker. For boys, the top 10 chosen names were Jack, Leo, Elijah, William, Thomas, Rowan, Walker, Henry, Brooks, and Carter. Overall, the top 10 most popular baby names at Eastern Iowa Unity Point Health Hospitals in 2022 were Olivia, Harper, Charlotte, Ava, Violet, Lucy, Evelyn, Grace, and Aurora for girls, and Jack, Leo, Brooks, Liam, Oliver, Henry, Hudson, Asher, Theodore, and Owen for boys. Mercy One Hospitals in Iowa celebrated more than 6,600 births, including 115 sets of twins and three sets of triplets. Although popular baby names vary by region, Olivia was the top choice for girls across several Mercy One hospitals, following national trends. Top boy names at Mercy One Northeast Iowa also included Jackson, Hudson, Grayson, Sawyer, and Daniel. Popular girl names included Maeve, Layla, Remy, Evelyn, and Serenity. Mercy One, Northeast, uh, North Iowa, reported 670 births with Olivia, Eleanor, Evelyn as the top picks for girls' names, and Oliver and Henry were the top boys' names, with Jackson and Hayden tied for third. At Mercy One, Central Iowa in Des Moines, 
4,100 birds, including 92 sets of twins and three sets of triplets, resulted in Liam and Henry topping the top, topping the boys list, with Isaac and Oliver tied for third. Olivia, Charlotte, and Scarlett were the top girls' names. Recent naming trends tracked by Baby Center reveal references to nature such as Violet, Iris, and Juniper for girls, and River and Wren and Atlas for boys. Using the letter X in boys' names in particular, such as Jackson and Maddox, are a nod to cowboy culture, Baby Center said. The TV center Yellowstone, the TV series Yellowstone, is credited with popularizing names like Dutton, Casey, Setson, Walker, and Wyatt. Another rising trend is for grandmother coastal names like Rosemary, Hazel, and Eloise, referencing a fashion and style aesthetic that people associate with wealthy middle-aged women who live near a beach, Baby Center reported. Celebrity names... Celebrities are name influencers as well, with names like Maverick, after Tom Cruise's Top Gun Maverick, and Elon, as in Musk, are on the list, although Elon is the year's fastest falling baby name, Baby Center said, while Will, Jada, and Chris saw a dip in popularity following Will Smith famously slapping Chris Rock at the Academy Awards in March, after Rock joked about Smith's wife, Jada Pinkett Smith. The list of baby names dropping in popularity include Amber, which fell 176 spots on Baby Center's list after the defamation trial of Amber Heard and Johnny Depp and Ellie, Riley, Bella, Hannah, and Madison for boys' names. Miles was the biggest riser, while Cameron and Cameron, Andrew, and Logan dropped the most, and Jack fell out of the top 20. Now let's go on to the article. Farmland prices soar to record. Prices in the Midwest up 20% in third quarter as sales slump in cities. Buying a plot of land in rural America has never been so expensive. And that's even before soaring interest rates. Rising commodity prices mean farmers make record amounts of money this year, spurring a rush for space to plant in 2023. More demand comes just as people fled to the countryside during the pandemic, with non-metropolitan areas growing faster than urban ones, and investigators turned to fields as hedge, as hedge against inflation. Farmland prices in the Midwest, the nation's breadbasket, jumped 20% just in the third quarter from a year earlier, bucking a downturn in the residential real estate market, according to data from the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago and the National Association of Realtors. That was 11th consecutive quarter of gains, the longest streak since 2014. Jim Schultz, who runs Open Prairie, a private equity investment firm in central Illinois, believes farmland prices could double in the next 10 years. That's after 13,000 acres he bought between 1987 and 1992. For 750 each, an acre are now worth 16 times more. I believe we're at the start of a decade-long trend, said Schultz, who said that he had no interest in selling. We sit in a very good position. Growers across the U.S. are making money as Russia invades Ukraine, as Russia's invasion of Ukraine chokes off supplies from a key producer of everything from corn to wheat and sunflower oil. Higher prices have boosted farmer profits to almost $161 billion this year, a 14% increase from 2021. 
the U.S. Department of Agriculture estimates more demand for farmland coincides with pandemic-induced shifts in population. The number of people living in non-metro non counties rose 0.3% in the 12 months ended, ended in July 2021, the first time the growth in rural population outpaced the urban areas since the mid-1990s, mid according to the USDA. Tom Halverson, chief executive officer of CoBank, a cooperative lender serving rural America, said the expansion of broadband and the ability to do work from home helped fuel that shift. The reality is that for the first time in several decades, rural America is picking up population, he said on Bloomberg TV this month. It's our hope and our expectation that this will be somehow structural but it will be unevenly distributed across the country. Farmland has also become more attractive as owners seek to make money from the shift to clean energy. Demand for renewable diesel made from vegetable oils, but with identical chemical properties to petroleum-based fuel, is expected to triple in the next five years, according to Bloomberg NEF. Growers also have space for solar panels and wind turbines, with the number of farms with photovoltaic installations doubling in five years, according to 2017, according to the most recent USDA Census of Agriculture. Still, farmland with renewable assets accounted for only 6.5% of the total highlighting untapped potential. Producers can also now gain from sequestering carbon, with the price Indigo Ag pays farmers for carbon doubling in the past two years. To be sure, rising rates and a potential U.S. recession next year could still hit the farmland market. Prices for grade A plots in Illinois could decline between 2% and 5% next year, according to Luke Worrell, a farmland broker in the town of Jacksonville. Between decreasing returns and higher interest rates, you're hitting your top you're hitting your top two buyers of farmland. It's a one-two punch, Worrell said in an interview. We've had a wild ride, but we'd be naive to think that it'll last forever. We have to prepare for a little softening. Matthew Fitzgerald, who grows organic corn and soybeans with his family in McLeod County, Minnesota, said the biggest challenge for young farmers is the cost of land. He tapped a USDA program, expand his family's 200 acres to about 2,500 acres, and is partnering with agriculture land investment platform AcreTrader, which purchases land that, then, that he then manages and co-invests in. With farmland prices at these levels, it's a total puzzle to figure out how to be competitive and how to acquire land, Fitzgerald31 said by phone. Midwest commodity farming is a lot like the Mafia. You have to know someone or have a lot of money. In the long term, a growing, a glo a growing global population coupled with a, challenging climate, with a changing climate makes productive land in the Midwest integral to global food production. Interest from outside investors is also on the rise. Farmland is considered a great hinge against inflation because the commodities it produces usually gain in value when overall prices rise. Land is a real asset, Gary Shitnicki, professor at the University of Illinois, said in a conference in Champaign. Do you want to own a piece of dirt or 
cryptocurrency. It's, your, it's a good way to diversify, diversify your asset pool. Now let's move on to the article, Trump's Tax Returns Released After a Long Fight with Congress. Democrats in Congress released thousands of pages of former President Donald Trump's tax returns Friday, providing the most detailed picture to date of his finances over a six-year period, including his time in the White House, when he fought to keep the information private in a break with decades of precedent. The documents include individual returns from Trump and his wife Melania, along with Trump's business entities from 2015 to 2020. They show how Trump used the tax code to lower his tax obligation and reveal details about foreign accounts, charitable contributions, and the performance of some of his highest-profile business ventures, which he had largely remained shielded from public scrutiny. The disclosure marks the culmination of years-long legal that, that played out everywhere from the presidential campaign to Congress and the Supreme Court as Trump persistently rejected efforts to share details about his financial history, counter to the practice of transparency followed by all of his predecessors in the post-Watergate era. The records release come just days before Republicans retake control of the House and two weeks after Trump began another campaign for the White House. The records show how Trump limited his tax liability by offsetting his income against corporate losses, as well as millions of dollars in business expenses, asset depreciation, and other deductions. While Trump paid $641,931 in federal income taxes in 2015, the year he began his campaign for president, he paid just $750 in 2016 and 2015, according to a report released last week by Congress's nonpartisan Joint Committee on Taxation. He, he paid almost $1 million in 2018, but only $133,445 in 2019 and nothing in 2020, the year he unsuccessfully sought re-election. The records also detail Trump's foreign holdings. Trump, according to the filing reported, the filings reported having bank accounts in China, Ireland, and the United Kingdom in 2015 through 2017, even though he was the commander-in-chief, starting in 2018. However, he only reported an account in the UK. The returns also show that Trump claimed foreign tax credits for taxes he paid on various business ventures around the world, including licensing, licensing arrangements for use of his name on development projects and his golf courses in Scotland and Ireland. In several years, Trump appears to have paid more in foreign taxes than he did in net U.S. federal income taxes, making payments to countries including Azerbaijan, China, India, Indonesia, Panama, the Philippines, St. Martin, Turkey, and the United Arab Emirates. The documents show that Trump's charitable donations fluctuated during his presidency, but in his final years, represented only a, sl a sliver of his income. In 2020, Trump reported no charitable donations. In 2019 and 2018, he reported writing checks for around $500,000 in donations. In earlier years, the, number, the numbers were higher, around $1.8 million in 2017 and $1.1 million in 2016. It's unclear whether the reported sums include Trump's $400,000 annual presidential salary, 
which he said that he would forego and claimed that he donated to various federal departments. Jeff Hoops, an accounting professor at the University of North Carolina's Keenan Flagger Business School, described Trump's taxes as a large and complicated return, with a business that is set up to be complicated, with hundreds of entities scattered all over the globe. He noted that many of those entities are slightly unprofitable, which he described as pretty magical as far as the tax code. It's hard to know if someone's really bad at business or really good at tax planning because they both look the same. They both look like the same thing, he said. In a statement Friday, Trump lashed out at Democrats and, and the Supreme Court for the release. It's going to lead to horrible things for so many people, he said. The radical left Democrats have weaponized everything, but remember that is a dangerous two-way street. But he also said that the returns demonstrated how proudly successful I have been and how I have been able to use depreciation and various other tax deductions to build his business. The returns detail how Trump used tax law to minimize his liability, including carrying forward massive losses from previous years as allowed by tax law. Trump said during his 2016 campaign that paying little or no income tax in some years make me smart. For instance, in 2020, more than 150 of Trump's business entities listed negative qualified business income, which the IRS defines as the net amount of qualified items of income, gain, deductions, and loss from any qualified trade or business. In total, for, the la for that tax year, combined with almost $9, $9 million in carry-forward loss from previous years, Trump's qualified losses amounted to more than $58 million for the final year of his term in office. Another of Trump's money losers, the ice rink his company operated until last year in New York, Central, New York City's Central Park. Trump reported that $2.6 million in losses from Woolman Rink over six years made public. The rink, an early Trump organization jewel run through a contract with New York City's government, reported a loss of $1.3 million in 2015, despite taking in $9.3 million in revenue, according to the tax returns. The rink turned a $298,000 profit in 2016, but was back to melting cash in each year, each of the next four years. Now let's move on to another somewhat heavy article of Suspect in Deaths of Idaho Students Arrested in Pennsylvania. A 28-year-old criminal justice graduate student was arrested in eastern Pennsylvania on Friday as a suspect in the mysterious stabbing deaths of four University of Idaho students last month, authorities said. DNA evidence played a key role in identifying Brian Christopher Kohlberg as a suspect in the killings and officials were able to match his DNA to genetic material recovered during the investigation, a law enforcement official said. The official, who was not authorized to publicly discuss the ongoing investigation, spoke on condition of anonymity. The students, Kaylee Gonclaves, Madison Mogan, Zana Kernodal, and Ethan Chapin, were stabbed to death at a rental home near campus in Moscow, Idaho, early November 13th. Moscow Police Chief James Fry said that Coburg attends Washington State University, which is only a few miles across the state line from Moscow. Investigators are still looking for a weapon, Fry said at a news conference. The killings initially confounded law enforcement and shook the small 
farming communities of around 25,000 people, which hadn't been which hadn't had a murder for five years. But tips began pouring in after law enforcement, after the public for help finding a white Hyundai Elantra sedan seen near the home around the time of the killings. In addition to the DNA evidence, authorities also learned that Coburg had a white Hyundai Elantra, the officials who spoke anonymously said, Federal investigators had been watching Coburg and arrested him early Friday morning at a home in Chestnut Hill Township, Pennsylvania. Federal and state investigators are combing through his background, financial records, and electronic communications as they work to identify a motive and build the case, the officials said. The investigators are interviewing people who knew Coburg, the officials said. During the news conference, Lata County Prosecutor Bill Thompson said investigators believe Coburg broke into the student's home with the intent to commit murder. He is being held without bond in Pennsylvania and will be held without bond in Idaho once he is returned, Thompson said. The affidavit for four charges of first-degree murder in Idaho will remain sealed until he is returned, as required by state law. Koberger also is charged with felony burglary charge, fel- felony burglary in Idaho, Thompson said. An extradition hearing is scheduled for Tuesday. Koberger just completed his first semester as a PhD student in the Department of Criminal Justice and Criminology at Washington State University. He is also a teaching assistant for the program, according to WSU's online directory. University police assisted Idaho law enforcement in executing search warrants at Coburg's campus apartment and office, said the, the university said. WSU officials did not immediately respond to a request for a comment about Coburg's work as a teaching assistant. This horrific act has shaken everyone in the Palos region, said WSU provost Elizabeth Chilton in a prepared statement referring to the scenic rolling hills surrounding both universities. We will long feel the loss of these young people in the Moscow-Pullman community and hope the announcement today will be a step towards healing. You are listening to the reading of the Waterloo and Cedar Falls Courier for Sunday, January 1st on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Let's get back to that article we were just reading. WSU and UI are partners in several academic programs, and students sometimes attend classes and seminars or work at the neighboring schools. But University of Idaho President Scott Green wrote in a memo to students and employees on Friday evening that Idaho school had no record of him. Koberger graduated from Northampton Community College in Pennsylvania with an Associate of Arts degree in Psychology in 2018, College spokesperson Mia Rossi Marino said. DeSales University in Pennsylvania said that he received a bachelor's degree in 2020 and completed graduate studies in June 2022. Don Clavs, 21, of Rathdrum, Idaho, Morgan, Mogan, 21, of Cordialone, Idaho, Kernoodle, Kernodal, 20, of Post Falls, Idaho, and Chapin, 20, of Cornway, Washington, were members of the university's Greek system and close friends. Mogan, Gonclaves, and Kernodal lived in a three-story rental home with two other roommates. Kernodal and Chapin were dating, and he was visiting the house that night. 
Autopsies showed all four were likely asleep when they were attacked. Some had defensive wounds, and each was stabbed multiple times. There was no sign of sexual assault, police said. Police said Thursday that the rental home would be cleared of potential biohazards and other harmful substances to collect evidence. Shannon Gray, an attorney representing Gonclav's father, Steve Gonclav's, said that law enforcement officials called the family Thursday night to let them know about the arrest. Ben Roberts, a graduate student in the Criminology and Criminal Justice Department at WSU, described Koberger as confident and outgoing, but said it seemed like he was always looking for a way to fit in. I had honestly just pegged him as being super awkward, Roberts said. Roberts started the program in August, along with Koberger. He said that he had several courses with him. He described Koberger as wanting to appear academic. One thing that he would always do, without fail, was find the most complicated way to explain something, he said. He just had to make sure you knew that he knew it. We are relieved this chapter is over because it provides a form of closure. However, it doesn't alter the outcome or alleviate the pain, Ethan Chapin's family said in a statement after the news conference. We miss Ethan and our family is forever changed. No lawyer for Koberger was listed in the court documents and no phone calls to the county public defender's office went answered went unanswered on Friday. Now let's move over to the obituaries, starting with William Bill Farmer. William Bill Farmer, 72, of Cedar Falls, Iowa, died peacefully at Allen Hospital on December 29, 2022. Few people lived their lives with as much compassion and joy as Bill. Bill was born September 14, 1950, in Great Bend, Kansas, and was raised in Mason City, Iowa, where he loved singing and spending times outdoors. While studying biology and education at Loras College, Bill took part in two particularly transformative experiences, a choir trip to Europe, which opened up the world to him, and a mentoring club called Do It Yourself, where he met his lifelong friends as well as his wife of 48 years, Mary Lee. The two were married at St. Patrick's Church in Dubuque on June 15, 1974. During the Vietnam War, Bill served his country as a conscious objector, first as a teacher at St. John's School in Waterloo, and then as an orderly at Allen Hospital. This experience inspired him to pursue a nursing career, and he graduated from Allen College of Nursing in 1977, one of two men in his graduating class. Bill enjoyed his career at Allen and greatly appreciated his treasured colleagues and mentors. Every day at the hospital provided an opportunity to help someone, and he encouraged the same sense of purpose and fulfillment in those around him. As a father and husband, Bill was loving and ever-present. He packed the family lunches every morning and always included a thoughtful note. He tucked the girls in every night with songs for Laura and Sherlock Holmes stories for Anne. In the summer, he and Mary took the girls... He and the girls took epic family road trips, including one all the way to Maine. After retiring from Allen Hospital, Bill enjoyed traveling with Mary and spent many great mornings with his friends at Cup of Joe in downtown Cedar Falls, where he was a beloved regular. Survivors include his wife, Mary of Cedar Falls, daughters Anne Cogden of Augusta, Maine, Laura Farmer of Marion, brother Steve Farmer of Mason City, sister-in-law Betty Lee of Dubuque, and sister-in-law Sean Farmer of Des Moines. 
nieces Lisa Wilfong of Urbandale and Karen Sp Sprague of San Antonio, Texas. He was preceded in death by his parents, Howard and Nancy Farmer, as well as his sister, Linda, and Paul, brother Paul, and sister-in-law, Ruth Farmer. A visitation will be held at Richardson Funeral Service on Monday, January 2nd from 4 to 7 p.m. with a rosary at 3.45 p.m. The Mass of Christian Burial will be held on Tuesday, January 3rd at 10 a.m. at St. Patrick's Catholic Church in Cedar Falls. A lunch, will all, a lunch for all will follow with burial at Greenwood Cemetery. Memorial donations may be made to the Allen Foundation or St. Patrick Catholic Church. Online condolences may be left at www.richardsonfuneralservice.com. Grossy Mighty Grow Heart Grossy Mighty Grow Heart, 85, of Waterloo, stepped into eternity on Monday, December 26, 2022, at Martin Health Center of Western Homes Communities in Cedar Falls. He was born on November 23, 1937, in Starkville, Mississippi, the son of James Harris and Sadie Hart. Mighty Grow graduated from high school in Starkville and attended Mississippi State University for a while. He married Lily Mae Harrington on April 8, 1968, at Antinoch Baptist Church in Waterloo. Mighty Grow worked as a tool grinder for John Deere, where he retired July 1, 1997. To say he loved golf would be an understatement. Mighty Grow was a member of the Swingers Golf Club in Waterloo that created opportunities for minority golfers and taught young golfers the game. He was instrumental in forming the Zebra Golf Tournament, an integrated golf tournament that was held at various public courses in the city. He started Mighty Grow's Shootout, a friendly golf wagering club. Mighty Grow played, a golf, played golf almost every day during the summer and had done so for over 70 years. But it is hard to play golf in the winter, so Mighty Grow turned to bowling, a hobby that he embraced for over 50 years, and played in various tournaments and had a team, Grow's Army. Mighty Grow was a social butterfly, sometimes to the dismay of Lily. He loved to mentor teenagers and young adults about life values, and Mighty Grow enjoyed making chicken wings and pound cake. He was, an act he was active in his son's Quinton's various campaigns. Grow loved Lily and his children and enjoyed his grandchildren. He was not happy until they would give him some jaw. He served in the U.S. Army during the Vietnam conflict. Grossi is survived by his wife, Lily of Waterloo, sons Quinton Hart of Waterloo, James, Lip of James Lipsy of Jackson, Tennessee, daughters Laura Lipsy of Waterloo and Veronica Jones of Omaha, 11 grandchildren, 11 great-grandchildren, sister Eula Hart of Starkville, Mississippi, nephew Gary Hart, who Grossi raised in Waterloo, and other family and friends. He was preceded in death by his parents, brother Joseph Hart and daughter Loretta Gillipsy. A homegoing celebration for Grossi will be Thursday, January 5th, 2023, at Antioch Baptist Church, 426 Summer Street, Waterloo, at 11 a.m., with military honors to follow. Private burial will be at the Garden of Memories Cemetery. The family will receive friends, and a wake will be held at the church on Wednesday evening, January 4th, 2023, from 5 to 7 p.m., 
As a show of sympathy, memorials should be directed to the family. Online condolences may be expressed at www.lockfuneralservices.com. Karen Deborah Moe Tovey Karen Deborah Moe Tovey passed away peacefully in Waverly on December 12, 2022. She was born on May 17, 1960 in Iowa Falls, Iowa, to Carl and Jan Moe. Karen is survived by her parents, Carl and Jan Moe of Waverly, brothers Dave Moe of Egan, Minnesota, Eric Moe of Waverly, and son Ben Weavers, and grandson Hadrian of Prattville, and seven nieces and nephews. Visitation will be held on Saturday, January 7th, 2023, at 12, o'clock, 12 p.m., followed by a funeral service at 1 p.m. at Redeemer Lutheran Church in Waverly. Now let's move over to some sports articles. Starting with college wrestling, Terukina is one tough coconut. This is a story about an old coconut and a new coconut. Waterloo College senior Zarin Terukina has always been a talented wrestler. He was a two-time Hawaii State champion who came from a family full of standout prep and collegiate wrestlers. A chance encounter at a post-high school wrestling tournament led him to finding and coming to Wartburg in 2018, where for two years he won more than he lost but never figured into the Knights' postseason plans. That led to a hard conversation with Wartburg head coach Eric Keller. When that meeting in Keller's office was over, the old coconut stayed behind and a new coconut emerged. I remember my freshman and sophomore years, I was just going through the motions, and I sat in that couch pointing to a couch in Keller's office and talked to coach. Terukina said, you know, coach is always to know when something is not right, and he knew that I wasn't on the right path. He and I had a serious talk, and from then on, I bought in and did everything right. When I did that, I jumped to levels I couldn't imagine, and my wrestling improved dramatically. After going 26-15 and 15 in his first two seasons with Wartburg, with new dedication and determination, Terukina took off last winter as a junior, reaching 141-pound Division III National Finals where he lost 3-2 to Mount Union's Jordan James. Despite the loss, Terukina took solace in the fact that he helped Wartburg win its 15th national championship. Now that he is the top-ranked 141-pound wrestler in Division Three, as Wartburg begins preparation for the NWCA National Dual Championships in Louisville on January 6th through 7th. Keller remembers that conversation vividly because he uses it and what transpired out of it as a teaching tool. Keller refers to an old phrase, burning one's bridge, when describing the meaning. He got to the point where that had to happen for him, Keller said. He was always a he was always good talent-wise, but what he thought was dedicated and what he thought was hard wasn't. He got to a crossroads and sat on that couch. He came in and didn't know what to do. I shot him straight. I talked to him about lifestyle, who you surround yourself with, and how you think. All the things that ultimately make up what is important, like power of decision, the power of prioritization and visualization. Why are you not seeing yourself in the lineup? Why are you not seeing yourself winning a national title? All these things that all these things you are saying that you want, why are you not seeing yourself there? Keller continued. 
Then we started talking about the roadblocks that were in the way. Terukina now sees the vision, and he says that led to his breakout season. It was just tunnel vision, Terukina said. I could picture myself. It was a vivid and clear, and I could see myself in the finals. In every workout, every run, every lift, every practice, I just imagined myself wrestling in the finals. Doing the things that are hard to do and enjoying it. That is what you need, that is what you have to do when times get hard. You just push through and see your way through. Keller says the coolest part of the story is Terukina had one request as the meeting ended. He laid it all out there. I laid it all out there. All the cards were on the table, Keller said. And when we were done, he said that this is what I'm going to do. And I got one favor, coach. I really, really want you to hold me accountable to it. I told him you are darn right. I will hold you accountable. And the best part of it is, guess how many times I've had to hold him accountable? Zero. Realistically for us, he is the story and he is the example I will tell our team about. Most guys who are in our program, they remember the old coconut. And now they know the new coconut. And they want to know how that can be them. All these new young guys who are here now just assume that he was always that good. So now I'm really really clear helping them understand that he was just like you when he was younger. And he is how... And here is how you get from point A to point B, finished Keller. So what's the deal about Coconut? Like his brothers and sisters, Zarin doesn't always answer to his first name. He is called Coconut by friends and family. His sister, Shayani, who played soccer at Utah State, is Princess. Older brothers, Shaden, who wrestled at Iowa State, is Bullnut. And Blason, a... NAIA national champion in 2020 for Menlo College is Kooky Nut. Younger brother and current Iowa State Cyclone Kaisen is Peanut. The Terukinas are considered wrestling royalty in Hawaii. Dad Daryl was a two-time Hawaii state, champion, state champ winning in 1983 and 1984, and Daryl's brother Ben won three Hawaii high school state titles. 1984, 85, and 86. Zarin, 2017-2018, Shaden, 2008, 11, and 12, and Blason, 2015-2016, combined to win seven more high school state titles, and Kaisen won four. In all, the Terukinas of Iwa Beach have won 16 state titles. While he wouldn't go down the road of whom is the best wrestler in the Tirokina family, Zarin, who just returned from a quick visit to his family in Hawaii, felt free to talk surfing greatness. I'd probably say I'm the best surfer. We always tease Kaisen, tell him that he has the Eddie stance, but for me, I feel I ride the waves the best, Tirokina laughs. Really, we just like to hang out and watch each other surf. We get a good laugh, good kick out of it when somebody wipes out. Now on to a different article. Despite the loss of her sight, UNI's Chambers finds purpose in the pool. Northern Iowa's women's swimmer Olivia Chambers doesn't know what she'd do if she couldn't swim. Win or lose, Chambers has found purpose and power in the pool despite losing her sight a little more than three years ago. As it turns out, it doesn't matter that she can't see the finish line. Chambers is still touching the wall in first place more often than not. That has been the case since the Little Rock, Arkansas native arrived in Cedar Falls last fall. 
and was on full display this month at the United States Paralympic National Championships in Charlotte, North Carolina. The sophomore, who was classified as legally blind under World Paraswimming Dis- Disability classifications as a S13 athlete, won a pair of golds and a bronze medal to earn Swimmer of the Meet honors. Chambers finished first in the 400-meter freestyle in the 200-meter individual medley, edging out three-time Paralympic champion Elizabeth Marks. This came off the back of a silver and bronze medal winning performance at the City Para Swimming World Series in Mexico in October. It was my first para-internationals, and it was really fun experience, because I got to meet a bunch of para-Olympians and a bunch of big names in the para-swimming world and race against them, Chambers said. Chambers has swam for 15 years, with 12 with sight and 3 without. Tests were run, and while doctors found a mitochondrial disorder, they're unsure how it affected her sight. However, whatever the reason for her blindness or how it would change her life, Chambers wasn't going to let it take away what she would love doing most. It was a little scary. I've always loved the water. That's where I've always that's where I feel the most comfortable. I love racing others, Chambers said, and I wasn't going to let losing my sight stop me from swimming, because that's what I love to do. Getting in the water blind came with new challenges. Chambers had to know when to turn after reaching a wall and navigate staying in her own lane. At first, she relied on a, a tapper who would signal her with a pole, but moved on, from, moved on from it by counting her strokes. I knew with a certain number of strokes I would be at the wall, and I would turn, and it was a learning experience, she said. And I still count my strokes, but I don't have to be as calculated because of all the practice I've done. With her technique down, Chambers caught the eye of a women's swimming and diving team at UNI. Arriving in Cedar Falls from Little Rock, her work ethic wasn't lost on her fellow Panthers or coaches. Assistant coach Ben Collin worked with Chambers closely. According to him, her energy is infectious and her love of the sport makes it easier for him to coach her. Olivia is a ball of energy and she really brings that to each session, Collin said. She's excited to race and practice. She's excited to get better and that really makes coaching her a lot of fun. Chambers is only getting better. She broke her personal records in recent competitions, and last summer, she set a para-American record in the 400-meter individual medley during the USA Swimming Futures Championship in Minneapolis. For Chambers, swimming has gone from a sport to a means of empowerment, and she's determined to master it stroke by 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 counted stroke. Now that I have para-swimming, it's another goal of mine, Another thing that I can achieve, and it's finally feeling like something good is coming out of it, out of me losing my sight. Chambers said that saying, saying that before, she didn't know how she would manage living an independent life. But now with swimming, I can see that there's hope, and that there's a goal, and that I can do this, and that there's so many others that so many others have, and it just pushes me to be better, to be a better person and better in the water. A biology major, Chambers and the Panthers are next in action on January 13th through 14th, when they will host Illinois State at the Glen F. Henry Swimming and Diving Pool at UNI. Now let's move on to our final article of today. Notre Dame holds off South Carolina in high-scoring Gator Bowl. Tyler Buchner 
accounted for five touchdowns to help offset two interceptions returned for touchdowns, and number 16 Notre Dame beat 20th-ranked South Carolina 45-38 in a wild tax slayer bowl on Friday. The highest-scoring game in Gator Bowl history was filled with big plays and memorable moments, but Buckner was de- delivered the knockout blow when he found tight end Mitchell Evans wide open for a 16-yard touchdown on a 3rd and 7, playing with a minute and 38 seconds remaining. Buckner, who regained the starting job after Drew Pine entered the, traversal, the transfer pro- portal following the regular season final, threw for 274 yards and three touchdowns. He also ran for 61 yards and two scores but his three interceptions proved too much for to overcome. O'Donnell Fortune returned one of them for 100 yards for a touchdown in the fourth quarter, and D.Q. Smith returned another 47 yards for a score in the first. But Buckner bounced back from both miscues to earn his first victory in three career starts. Notre Dame overcame a 14-point deficit and won despite South Carolina scoring on two pick-sixes on special teams. Punter Kai Kroger connected with long snapper Hunter Rogers for one of the oddest touchdowns in bowl lore. Spencer Rattler competed, completed 29 of 44 passes for 246 yards for the, game cooks, for the Gamecocks with an interception and two touchdowns to Xavier Leggett. Here's a subheader, the Orange Bowl. Joe Milton completed 19 of 28 passes for 251 yards and three touchdowns, and number 6 Tennessee finished off its best season in more than two decades by topping number 10 Clemson 31-14 in the Orange Bowl. Squirrel White, Brew McCoy, and Ramal Keaton had the scoring catches for the Volunteers who matched their best record since 2001. Jalen Wright rushed for 89 yards, and Jabari Small had a touchdown run for Tennessee. Cade Klubnick made his his first start for Clemson, completed 30 of 54 passes for 320 yards with two interceptions. But Clemson just just kept coming on empty chances, coming up empty on chances. The Tigers got into Tennessee territory on nine of their first 10 possessions and turned those trips into only two field goals. Klubnik ran in from four yards out to get Clemson with 21 and 14 with 10 minutes and one second left, but Milton connected with Keaton for a 46-yard score on the next Tennessee possession. The Volunteers intercepted Klubnik on a desperation fourth-down heave about a minute later, and the celebration wasn't on yet, but looming. Workers began setting up the post-game stage, including the customary oranges that the winning team gets to toss during the trophy ceremony. Milton, the Orange Bowl MVP, opened the scoring with a 16-yard pass to McCoy late in the first. Small's two-yard rush pushed the lead 14-0, with nine minutes and three seconds left in the half. The nation's most prolific offense wasn't at its best Friday night, Tennessee led the nation this year in yards and points per game, but it didn't have to, but it didn't have to be either. And that does it for today's reading of the Waterloo and Cedar Falls Courier for Sunday, January 1st. I'm your reader, Will Potter. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. Thanks for listening.